Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Amen. I don't know about you guys. Can you guys just sense the peace of the Lord in here? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, one of, it's one of the benefits of what happens when we really worship the Lord. I just feel the space is cleared out for us to really now just receive. All distractions are gone and hearts are just open to receive. Um, yeah, so much of what we were worshiping, I feel, will come forth in the word in some, some form or fashion but how many of you are with us? I, I'm, I'm really, I feel like I probably say this every week, but I am really fired up for today, especially, uh, I don't know if you guys were with us a few weeks or months ago, we had a service in which the Lord really just um, intervened and just led us in a completely different route, and we winded up really honing in on this expression of taking back what the enemy has stolen. You guys remember this? <laughs> um, and so we winded up opening up the mic, and we just had people declaring um, over their lives, what they're uh, taking back. And I really felt that that was not just meant to be a one-time service, but that we were stepping into something in terms of a season. And, and I, one of the things we can do is we hear these things and then we just move on to the next message. But we really need to stop and say, Lord, I believe we're in a season of taking back what the enemy has stolen. And, uh, and I want to speak into that. Um, I believe there's a lot of ways that can happen and I'll probably hit... Uh, uh, one of the ways, not today, but one of the ways you can take back is actually in a very forceful way. <laughs> like, right, the, the, the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent take it. The violent take it by force. And that's the scripture the Lord's been stirring in my heart. And there are times where we actually take. We actually go under the anointing and power of God and we destroy the works of the devil. Uh, so there's a real aspect of taking back in a very forceful way. But what I felt led to speak into today and next week is another side of it, but nevertheless, I believe it's still unto the same reality of taking back what the enemy has stolen. And it's by being, it's by standing firm in such a confidence over the sovereignty of God over your life, in that even through your hardest seasons, what seems to be your darkest moments, there is the providence of God over your life who is causing and working all things for good in your life. And even when it feels like the enemy has an upper hand, all that God is doing is setting a stage for God's glory to be put on display through your life. Even when it feels like he's winning, he's not, he, does, he never wins. Guys, I am like, my heart's burning with hope. I pray the Lord would set your hearts on fire with hope. That no matter what you go through, there is no victory for the enemy in your life. And the only reason why God would allow something to come in your life is, once again, you're going to hear me say this a lot, is he's refining you into the image of his son more and more, and he's setting a platform that the enemy has no idea is coming where God's going to receive more glory from what this thing was than if it never happened. And once again, the enemy will be openly shamed in your life. And what I want to encourage you is part of the taking back is, is simply to stand firm and not let your life be wavered back and forth. Not, not allow uh, doubt and unbelief and fear to creep in, but that you would, again, have full confidence in what the Lord is doing. Amen? Guys, when we look at this, when, <laughs> this is so good. It, it's not just like evil. It's God's even, even sin in our life, God has saw beforehand. And he's already folded it into his glorious plan of redemption in your life. He's working all things in your life 
for good. So I want you to turn with me to Romans 8, please. We're going to do some crushing today. <laughs> yeah. I see heads being lifted up in the spirit as they see what the Lord is doing in their life. You're his child. Nothing is out of his control, and he's not forsaken you or left you. So I want to read Romans 8, and I want to read specifically verse 28, 29. Now, I know if you've been saved in the Lord for even just a few days, you have probably read Romans 8, 28. So here's what I want to say. This is one of the most popular and weighty verses in all of the scriptures. But here's the danger. Is whenever we become overly comfortable with a verse, overly familiar, we begin to stop approaching it with a childlikeness. We begin to come and say, I've already learned this principle, I've got this, and we move on. But I want us this morning to approach with fresh eyes the glory that is found in Romans 8.28, that there is something so weighty that God wants to deposit from this principle. And what we're going to do is after sharing Romans 8.28.29, we're going to go look through the scriptures and see the principle that we just shared is woven throughout the testimony of scripture. God again and again is doing this, and he's doing it in your life. Amen? So let's look at verse 28, Romans 8, verse 28. This is the Apostle Paul, and he says, and we know. Okay, so stop right there. <laughs> Two verses prior to this, I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul said. As he was speaking about the need for the Spirit, in verse 26 of chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know. You see, he says, we do not know what we ought to pray. We need the Spirit. And I believe what Paul is saying here is due to the complexities of life and just the brokenness of life and our finite minds, guys, there is so many things that we have no understanding of how they're working and why they're happening. And Paul says there is so much that we do not know that we even need the Spirit just to pray. But then after saying that, Paul is essentially telling us even though there's so much we do not know, there is one thing that we do know. There is one thing that you can have the utmost confidence in. There is one thing that you can build your life upon and take to the bank. What is that, Paul? In, in, a, in a realm where there is so much uncertainty in this life and so much we can't fully understand, what is it that we can have firm confidence in? Paul says again in verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And then verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, meaning Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So the one thing that Paul says that we know as a born-again believer is that God, for those that love him are called according to his purpose, God is working and causing all things for good in your life. The question is, what is the good? Well, part of it's found in verse 29. He goes on to say that we're all being made into the image of his son, which means you can have the utmost confidence in that no matter what you walk through, God is making you look more like Jesus through it in every single thing. But number two, perhaps the biggest thing that we're going to see today is that not only is God refining you through all things, that's part of the good, but also the stage is being set for the Son to be glorified in a maximal way through everything in your life. 
And I want you to know that the way God has wired us is to be most satisfied when God is most glorified. We want God to be glorified, whether we recognize it or not. When we live for self, we find it to be very empty. When we live for God, we find our hearts bursting with joy and excitement and contentment. So the more God is glorified in your life, the more you are satisfied. And God says, you can take this to the bank. No matter what's happening in your life, I'm working it towards this one thing, that the Son is going to be ultimately glorified through it. And therefore, your hearts will be ultimately content through that. God is causing all things to work together for good. What things? All things. That means the positive and the negative. That means the pleasurable and the painful. This is the word of the Lord. It's really easy for me, but I'm going to step out and say probably many feel this way, that we can only see God doing something good through the positive and pleasurable things. I thank God for those moments, but here's the confidence we have in the goodness and sovereignty of God, is even through your most painful moments, even moments that's been caused by your own rebellion, God in his goodness is working it for good. He has already seen it, and he's already folded it into his plan of redemption in your life. There is nothing outside of the realm of what God is doing. God is never surprised by the things of your life. God's never taken off, off track. God is never uh, um, having to adjust on the fly. He sees the beginning to the end. God is causing all things, all things to work together for your good right now. My heart is burning when I see these things in the scriptures. And do you know where, let me put it this way, the, the, um, the climactic and decisive expression of what I just said, do you know where it's found? At the cross and the death of Christ. If you want to understand Romans 8.28 and say, where, where do you see this in its, in its most climactic point? It's the death of Christ at the cross, where we see Romans 8.28 played out in a way we've never seen before. Guys, please, I want you, I feel like a shepherd's heart. I want you to hear this because we're going to connect this to your life. And I promise it's going to, it's paradigm shifting. <laughs> Never again do we just say, well, I'm just getting through. <laughs> I'm just getting by. God is so victorious. He's working through everything in your life. And the cross is the climactic expression of what I just said. And I want you to track with me on this. What is the ultimate purpose of creation? The ultimate primary purpose of creation is to bring glory to the Son. The ultimate purpose of all things is to glorify Jesus. So, for example, in Colossians 1, it says about Christ, all things are made by him, through him, and then for him. That, that, that description for him, that's the summary of all of life. Why am I here? Why does family exist? Why does everything exist? For one primary purpose, one ultimate purpose, for him. Everything is made to glorify Christ. Everything is made to point and reflect and testify to his goodness, his, the, his character and the things that he does. Are you with me? So all of creation is to glorify Christ. Then what is the essence of evil? The essence of evil is anything and everything that seeks to oppose the fullest display of the glory of Jesus. Do, do you hear me? So listen, everything is made for the glory of Christ. What is the essence of evil? Evil is anything and everything that seeks to oppose the fullest display of the glory of Jesus. Now, are you ready for this? What is the apex of evil? Where was the worst sin ever committed? At the cross. At the cross when the Son of God was put to death. At the cross when Jesus was put to death, I want you to picture it this way. It's like hell and all of its resources were given full reins to do its worst. 
Do your worst as if God could say, here, you pick the card. This isn't a magic trick where God held onto the cards. God says, you pick the card and watch what happens. Hell, hell unleashed its full resources. The power of darkness did everything it possibly could. It did it, it, anything it had, any power, any authority that it has. It unleashed all of it on the Son of Man at the cross in hopes to what? Destroy the glory of Jesus. But do you know what happened? By putting Jesus to death, the very glory they tried to destroy, they winded up setting the grandest stage of which his glory has ever been seen. Can you imagine that? All of hell said, all of our resources are going to destroy the glory of the sun. Here we go. They nail him to a cross, and all that they do is create the theater for the glory of Jesus to be seen in a way we've never seen before. The, the apex of evil, you know what it achieved? The apex of the glory of the Son of Christ. The very thing I wanted to destroy, the only thing it did was it actually furthered God's purposes. So much so that Paul says now, I preach Christ crucified, which is the glory of the gospel of Jesus. The glory of the gospel of Jesus. Paul says Christ crucified is the greatest display of the glory of Jesus. Everything evil wanted to stop, it only wound up doing. Do you know what that means? That means God doesn't just overcome evil. That might be great, but God doesn't just overcome evil. He makes evil serve his purposes. God doesn't just overcome sin in your life. He's actually making all of your sinful choices serve his ultimate plan of redemption in your life. Guys, that is completely different. It would be glorious to say, wow, Satan came, God stood up and defeated him. It's even better than that. You want to know what happened when, when sin and evil did its worst at the cross? The only thing sin and evil was doing at the cross was, was fulfilling the prophecy that was already spoken about it. The only thing sin and evil was doing at the cross was playing the part that was already assigned to it by God. Here comes evil saying, look at the great plan that we have. And God says, it is written. It is written. It is written. And I want you to know, guys, this is the same thing for your life. No matter what you ha are going through, everyone has been, some been through something, going through something, or will go through something. And as a child of God, there are times when it feels like, what is going on? It feels like evil has an upper hand. I can't make sense of this. I want, I want you to have the firm confidence that the only reason why God has allowed that into your life is he is setting a stage for Christ to be so glorified through it. He's already seen it and he's grafted it in. He's grafted into the glorious plan that he's unfolding in your life. God was not surprised by sin. God did not have to revamp his plan on the fly. For the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the earth. Jesus was slain before. All that was set up was a trap for the enemy to come right into it. And he's doing it in your life. He's doing it right now in each and every one of your lives. Is that not glorious news? <laughs> So it gets even better. Come to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter 2. By the way, if, if you, I think most of you would agree that evil is the essence of trying to stop the display of God's glory, but here's a verse to even back that up. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says about Satan, the god of this age, that's a name for Satan, it's a lowercase g, seeks to blind the minds of unbelievers that they would not see the glory of Jesus in the gospel. So the whole thing he wants to do is veil the glory of God, and that's what he wanted to do when he put him to death, thinking that's it. And he set the stage for Christ to be most glorified. 
So 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to pick it up in verse 7, but I want to I take this a little bit further. Paul, here's the context. Paul is speaking about Christ crucified, okay? And the way Paul describes this, he says that Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. And what he's really getting at is that it was God's wisdom being expressed at the cross by, by allowing the Son to be crucified. He was, he was making a way for salvation. He was making a way for redemption. He was making a way for adoption. He was making a way for the reconciliation of heaven and earth, new heaven, new earth. Everything that we long for and our hope is found was being accomplished at the cross. And Paul sums it by saying this is the wisdom of God. He basically said if it was up to the Greeks or up to the Jews, they would have tried to do this a totally different way. But in God's wisdom, he chose something that man would call foolish, which is the cross. And then he says this in verse 7, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. He says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. He's speaking about Christ crucified, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. You ready for verse 8? <laughs> None of the rulers of this age understood this. Now, what are the rulers of this age? Are they the human leaders during the time of Jesus' crucifixion? Perhaps there's a layer to that. Perhaps it includes the Jewish religious leaders. Perhaps it includes the, the uh, Roman officials that were part of the crucifixion. But if you read Paul's letters, you find that often when Paul speaks about rulers and principalities and powers, he's speaking about the unseen realm. Paul is speaking about really the, the demonic kingdom and so therefore, let's read it again. Verse 8 says, none of the rulers of this age understood this. What do you mean? They did not understand the wisdom of God that was being expressed through the cross. You ready? Because look what it says they would have done. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. <laughs> if the rulers of this age understood what was being accomplished at the cross, they would have never crucified him. In other words, if they understood that when you couldn't see them, but make no mistake about it, the kingdom of darkness was present at the scourging of Jesus, if they understood that with every stripping of his flesh, he was producing healing for the nations, they would have never done it. If they understood that when piercing Jesus, his sides and his hand, the blood that was being poured out was purchasing redemption and forgiveness, they wouldn't have done it. But beloved, they did not know. <laughs> And the same is true for your life. What Satan is doing, what he tries to do in your life, if he only knew that what he's actually doing is setting a stage for God to be glorified, he would never do it. The, the, that's my story and your story. <laughs> because for a while my life was inflicted with addiction. But if Satan only knew that when my life was driven to addiction, that would actually bring me to the end of myself and cause me to cry out to my Savior and open the door for me to begin to walk into my destiny, he would have never done it. <laughs> he would have never done that. <laughs> but he didn't know. And he has no idea for you that what he's trying to do in your life, God says, this isn't destroying the call in your life. This is actually allowing for divine promotion through it. <laughs> this is how good God is. <laughs> Rejoice, my friends. <laughs> God is working through all of these things. Here's a question that's worth asking. Why didn't God, why didn't the Father prevent the crucifixion? 
This is very important because this will so encourage your heart for whatever you're walking through. Why didn't the Father prevent the crucifixion? In other words, sometimes I, I ask myself this, God, why does it feel like, why don't you restrain evil and sin more than, it, than it's happening in this world? Is God not all-powerful? <laughs> of course he is. So why not? Let me, put it, let me put it this way. Do you know what Satan's eternal destiny is in Revelation? He's going to be cast into the lake of fire. It's this apocalyptic imagery of him being absolutely and utterly destroyed. But here's my question for you. When Satan, going back before the foundations of the world, this is a tough scene to imagine. I don't know how this could happen, but that's another a message. But Satan, in the glory before the Father, I mean the glory, the throne room of God, decided in pride to rebel against God. But here's my question. When he rebelled before the foundations of the world, was, was he worthy of the lake of fire right there? And the answer is an emphatic yes. So now we have to answer the question, why didn't God cast him into the lake of fire right away? Now this can open up a discussion on a lot of things, but I want to encourage your heart with something to apply it in your life. There's only one, pri I think there's one primary reason why God does not cast him into the lake of fire right away, and that's for this reason. In the infinite wisdom of God, he saw that by allowing Satan to exist for a certain amount of millennia, that it was actually going to produce even greater glory through the sun. The only reason why he does not destroy him right away is for that reason. He has the power. He has the right. He could have destroyed him immediately. But he saw the full array of Christ's glory being displayed in a way through, through millennia after millennia of Christ's long-suffering, Christ's humility, Christ's compassion, Christ's mercy, his loving kindness that would ultimately be found in the cross. There would be glory and power if God breathed right away and destroyed Satan. He could have done it. But he said, in his wisdom, he said, if I allow this thing to play out, my son will even be glorified in a greater way than he would if I just did it right away. What does that mean for me and you? That means if God has not removed something immediately for your life, <laughs> there's only one reason why. Because he says, number one, I'm refining you into the image of my son in a way you can't even imagine. And number two, the platform is being set in a way you can't imagine that when this thing comes about and I finally say enough, the glory that my son will receive through your life that will lead so many people to come to faith, you can't even imagine this. And so we can say, you know what that does? When we start walking through things, no longer are we saying, God, rush the process, uh, bitterness, whatever it may be. The only thing we say is, Lord, be glorified. Don't let, don't let a single thing be wasted through this season. I want you to receive the ultimate glory through my life. Amen? <laughs> All right, so I want to just share a few examples from this that I think will, uh, will really encourage you through the scriptures. Because um, I believe what we see at the cross and what we see throughout the scriptures is that when God allows these things to come into your life, uh, that you will never on the other side say, um, you'll never on the other side say, that was it. <laughs> Just like the cross, we stand in awe saying, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that's what God was doing. We're going to say that in our life. Yeah. Guys, do you know, let me come back to this. What we just saw at the cross, that, that, that Friday of which we celebrate Christ crucified, where the fullness of evil was unleashed on the son, the, the worst sin we've ever saw committed was committed, the grievous sin of seeing the son be crucified. What do we call that Friday now? Good Friday. Can you imagine this? Romans 8.28. You want to see Romans 8.28? We call the day that hell and the devil did its worst. You know what we call it now? Good. 
Can you imagine this? Do you know what that does to the kingdom of darkness? When they did their worst, and now for all of eternity, they see creation celebrating, saying, it is good, it is good, it is good. I promise you this, everyone in this room, I don't know if you'll see everything on this side of eternity. I know you'll see much, but if not, there will come a point where you will stand with the Father and you will see now the full scope of your life. And the only thing you will be able to declare over some of your hardest moments will be this, it is good. God, it is good that this came to pass. It is good that did you not remove this right away. I could not even see how you were working behind the scenes, but it is good. Amen. Come on, that, I'm like, I'm so excited. I just feel like, what can the enemy do? There's just nothing. There's, like God is so sovereign, so good, so in control. There's just nothing he can do that God has not already said, I've grafted in. And you want to see the proof? I could go through one example after another. Let me share just a few with you. Um, how many of you guys know the patriarch Jacob? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Okay, listen to this. Jacob had two wives. Their names were Rachel and Leah. And then he actually had two servants as well. One was a, a maidservant for each wife, Bilhah and Zilpah. And you know what happened? There was this fierce competition between Rachel and Leah as to who could have more kids with Jacob because that's how they found themselves to be more superior than the other. So can you imagine this? They're literally cranking out kids, <laughs> all for the sake of saying, I want to have more so that I'm better than you. And then when they couldn't have kids, they bring their maidservants in and they've got, Hill it's like uh, the Millers and the Sullivans right now. We're just going back and forth. <laughs> we'll see who, got, who has next. Now, even, even when Rachel and Leah couldn't have kids, they then bring in their maidservants, Billa and Zilpah, to start having kids. So now you've got all these kids coming, and it's so perverted and distorted. The motives are all off, and you can just see the fingerprints of the enemy all over this, laughing in the background, saying, ha. This is your lineage. This is the line of which this seed will come that will crush my head. Look, as they kill one another and they try to have kids from these selfish motives. You know what God says? Ha, you just birthed the 12 tribes of Israel. <laughs> How incredible is that? As Satan laughs, God says, actually, that's my 12 tribes right there. Thank you very much. Con consider this. Consider the sinful origin of the kings of Israel. Do you know how Israel began to have earthly kings? In Samuel, it says they come to Samuel and they basically say, we don't want God as our leader. We want to be like the nations. Give us a man who will rule over us. The scriptures talk about how grievous of a sin this was before God, that in their rebellion, they were literally rejecting God's sovereign hand over their life. You can, again, I just picture Satan laughing, saying, look, destroying your nation, your prized possession, I've caused them to rebel against you and not even want you as a leader. But do you know what starting that kingling line would do? There would be a man by the name of David. And by crying out for a king, by a man to be a king, they were actually creating the lineage that would bring forth the son of David, the king of kings, Jesus himself. By crying out for a man to be king over them, they were setting the stage for the God-man to come one day and lead over them. Once again, it says, I've got the upper hand. And God says, nope, it's already been factored into everything I'm going to do. And once again, I bring this to you. Guys, this is the same thing in your life. Even, listen, this, this, is, this, is, this is the grace of God gets offensive. But their sin was, they were rebelling against God. And even in their rebellion against God, God in his goodness was saying, I will use this for good in your life. Man, that is amazing. 
Here's another example I was thinking about. We just said that the most grievous sin ever committed was the murder. That's how, that's how they put it in Acts. Uh, Peter talks about how Christ was murdered, right? I know the Father, because he's behind it all, we, we know he's sovereign, but he was murdered. The Son of Man was murdered. And in that process of, of murdering the Son of Man, I believe you could make a strong case that the most despicable act committed within that process of murdering Jesus was the betrayal of Jesus. I mean, just think about this. One of Jesus' very own that he invested his life in, he poured into, Jesus washed the feet of Judas. Uh, I was like blown away. I never saw this before, but in Matthew 10, it says how Jesus sent out the 12 to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal and deliver. Do you know who's part of that 12? Judas. God literally empowered Judas to do the works of, of the kingdom of God. And so here you have this man now, as we get to the end of Jesus' life, in Luke 22, it says, Satan entered Judas. And again, I just imagine Satan saying, I've got him. <laughs> I caused one of your very own to turn on you. And Satan causes Judas, we know the story, to betray Jesus. And ultimately, he'll sell him out for uh, 30 coins of silver. So he, he causes him to sin against the Son of Man. But what that sin did was put Jesus on a cross that would ultimately destroy the curse of sin. In other words, God destroyed sin through sin. This is not amazing. God is so good and so sovereign, the way he was handed over and put to the cross was through a sinful act of betrayal. And God says, I'm actually going to destroy the power of sin and the curse of sin through a man's sinful act. God is working all things together for good in your life. There's one more story I want to share. Are you with me? Yeah. All right, let's, let's, I want you to actually just see a few verses here, and we'll close out, and then we're going to pray. Uh, if you could come with me to Genesis 37. Genesis 37. <laughs> I love that. God conquered sin through sin. <laughs> All right. Last story. I wanted you to see this. Many of you know this story. It spans a number of chapters. So you are going to get the fastest overview you've ever gotten on this story. <laughs> I'm just going to highlight a few verses, particularly at the end. But this is the story of Joseph being sold into slavery. There might not be a better illustration of the Romans 8.28 principle than this story right here. Right. All right, so what we have is Jacob, who had all those kids with, in, a, in a very bizarre, strange, sinful way. Well, now they're, they're grown up, and he has 12 sons. One of them is an, uh, a man by the name of Joseph. Joseph is the most favored out of all of the brothers before Jacob. He receives this special coat, but as a result, his brothers despise him. <laughs> the despising of Jacob, really, uh, Joseph, really hits its climax when Joseph has two dreams. And in both of these dreams, Joseph sees his 11 brothers bowing down before him. Once the brothers find out about that, it's over. They want to kill this man. So let's pick it up in verse, uh, chapter 37, verse 18. This is where Jacob sends Joseph out to check on his brothers. And look what they say about him and what their intent is. Genesis 37, verse 18. It says, They saw him from afar. So the brothers see Joseph from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So they want to kill him. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. <laughs> Here comes this dreamer. Verse 20. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him 
And we will see what will become of his dreams. Do you guys hear that? They say, let's see now what becomes of his dreams. And so thankfully, one of the brothers, Reuben, steps in and says, look, look, don't kill him. Just throw him in a pit. Uh, We we don't want to kill him. They said, fine. And then as they throw him in a pit, what they see is a a caravan of uh, people called the Ishmaelites coming by. And they say, let's not put any innocent blood on our hands. Here's what we're going to do. We'll make a trade with the Ishmaelites, and we're going to sell him into slavery, where eventually he'll be brought into Egypt. And so Joseph is carried off by his brothers into slavery, into Egypt. But I want you to see the point is that when they devised this plan to throw him in a pit and get rid of him, their whole thing was they were going to destroy this dreamer and the dream that he had. (laughs) That was the very purpose for why they did that. But what they did not see, what was utterly invincible to them was that there was an invincible hand of God working in all of this. So much so that the very plot they had to destroy the, the dreamer was actually now setting the stage for the dream to be fulfilled. (laughs) Guys, whatever the enemy is trying to do, and I don't like to like overly talk, but it's just the reality, like we face these things. His desire, even if it's through an individual, is I'm going to destroy the call of God on their life. Do you know the only thing that God is allowing to happen is everything he's doing is actually setting the stage for your calling. (laughs) He's setting the stage for you to step into everything that God has destined for you to step into. And so, I mean, we should just like jump around and say, Lord, like, it's just amazing. (laughs) There's nothing, there's, what am I worrying about? You are so good. There's just, God, everything you're working out for good. So here's what happens. He gets sold into slavery and he finds, he winds up being bought in Egypt by a man by the name of Potiphar, right? Potiphar is an officer for, um, for Pharaoh. And when he's ruling in uh, or serving in Potiphar's house, the favor of God's on Joseph's life, everything he touches essentially turns to gold, you know, saying that figuratively. And uh, he's, th- he's at the right hand now of Potiphar. He, he oversees his house. And, uh, and as this is happening, Potiphar's wife takes a liking to him. She sees like the call of God. She probably wouldn't call it that, but she sees something very attractive on his life. And she actually comes on to him in a sexual way. He denies that. And what happens is, is Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of rape. And of course, no one is going to be, believe Joseph, especially when you think of the stature that Potiphar has uh, in the kingdom of Egypt. And so what happens is, is Joseph is thrown into prison. And you say, well, that's it. Story's over. Enemy won. No, the stage is only being further set for the grace of God to be displayed through G- uh, Joseph's life. So now Joseph is thrown into prison. And who is in there? But Pharaoh's two very important men, a cupbearer and the baker. And they both have dreams. Joseph interprets them rightly. And now the word gets to Pharaoh because he has a dream that there is a dream interpreter in prison. Pharaoh summons Joseph to come out. Joseph interprets the dream rightly. Pharaoh's blown away by the wisdom of God on his life and says, there will only be one man greater than you in the kingdom of Egypt, and that's myself. But other than that, you'll be the right hand of me. <laughs> Isn't this incredible? And so here's, look at, look at verse uh, chapter 42. I, actually, I wasn't going to read this. I want you to see this. Um, or, verse 6. So Joseph now is at the right hand of Pharaoh. Oh, let me, I should say this. Here's, here's how this all comes together. The dream that Joseph interpreted was seven years of plentiful harvest followed by seven years of famine. And what Joseph did is God gave him such wisdom that he was able to devise a plan to make sure that Egypt did not go without food during the famine. In fact, there was so much wisdom on his life. He not only had food for Egypt, there was enough food for the nations to come and feed off of it. So what happens is, guess who's got to come now to get food? Joseph's brothers 20 years later. (laughs) 
They think this guy's gone. Joseph was probably around 17 years old. Now you're looking at 37, I think it's 39. Some people say 20 years later, Joseph is, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to get food. And you know who distributes the food now for Egypt? Joseph. <laughs> so look at verse 6 of Genesis 42. It says, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. He distributed the food. And Joseph's brothers came, and what did they do? And they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And they didn't even recognize that right before their eyes, the dream was being fulfilled. That's incredible. <laughs> now look at ver uh, chapter 45. Two more verses on this and we'll finish. Chapter 45, I want to read verse 4. Here is where Joseph now finally reveals himself to his brothers. And look what Joseph says about this entire situation. I'm in Genesis 45, verse 4. It's the first time he's revealing himself. So Joseph, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. <laughs> Isn't that not amazing? You say, whoa, 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 hold on. God sent him here? No, no, what sent him here was envy and jealousy and murder and, and uh, 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 betrayal and false witness. That's what sent Joseph here. And I want to be really clear. God is never the author of sin and injustice. What, what Joseph is saying here is not that God was the one behind all of these things. What Joseph is doing is he has such an awareness of the sovereignty of God that even though injustice exploded over his life, even though evil did its worst, sin did its worst, he was so aware of the sovereignty of God that he could summarize it this way, God sent me in advance. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Even when man did its worst, even when evil was doing its worst, even when injustice was all over my life and I was accused of one wrong thing after another, here's my summary of it. God was sending me to do something to preserve your life. What would that look like for us with all of the things that we can walk through if that was our perspective? I've said, like, that's why I feel the Lord speaking to me. What would that look like with all the things that can frustrate my heart to have such a confidence in God working this way? I believe this is the same idea of what happens when it says God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Do you guys know that? That's a very confusing scripture. Again, there's a lot of conversation to have, but what does that mean? God didn't give Pharaoh a chance. Why would he harden his heart? I really believe it's a statement of the sovereignty of God. In other words, Pharaoh actually hardened his heart. Pharaoh actually rebelled against the people of God. Pharaoh was actually sinning. But the, the writers of, of the... Of, uh, of, of the scriptures had such an awareness of the sovereignty of God that they were saying God was not caught off guard by Pharaoh's rejection. God was not caught off guard by Pharaoh's rebellion. In fact, God was so aware and had already seen this before it happened. It's as if God was behind all of this. It's as if God was allowing all this to come to pass to bring about his purposes. So here's the last verse. We'll summarize it here. Chapter 50. Chapter 50, um, verse, verse 19. Genesis 50, verse 19. Jacob has died, and the brothers are once again fearful that Joseph may come against them aggressively. And Joseph assures them with this statement. Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place, for I am I in the place of God, meaning I can't judge you. And then verse 20 says, As for you, 
You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. <laughs> and we bring it full circle to Romans 8:28. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen? Let's bring up the worship team. Amen. God is good all the time. <laughs> you know, we say, the, we say these things, right? This really helps us to, I feel like, explore another depth to it. God is good all the time. So what I really felt, um, for those who would like to stay around and receive prayer or just stay in worship with us, I really felt to, uh, to have a time of ministry to pray for those that are currently going through some really hard things. Uh, you can get as vulnerable as you want with those in the prayer team up here. But I just, I, I feel that there is a grace available today to have our perspectives changed completely. Where there may have been doubt and fear, where there may have been confusion, frustration at God. I mean, I've been there. I get frustrated at God's leadership sometimes. I'm like the clay speaking to the potter saying, what are you doing? <laughs> And God is saying, if you only see the bigger picture like I do, you would understand the masterpiece that I'm making here. And so I, I just believe that there's a grace for us to walk out of here uh, with a completely different mindset and completely different words on our mouth. When Jesus was going to the cross in John 12, he said, Father, what shall I say? Deliver me from, the, from this hour? He said, no, but for this very hour, I, it's for this very reason I've come to this earth. He says, no, this is what I say, Father, glorify your name. He says, Father, what should I say? Deliver me from this hour? He says, no, I say glorify your name. And the Father speaks over him and says, I am being glorified and I will be glorified. Yes. Guys, there is probably nothing more encouraging than when you walk through something to know in your heart that the Father speaks over you and says, I am being glorified through your life right now and I will be glorified. And it is not just the pretty moments of your life. God is being glorified through my past and my brokenness with addiction. God is being glorified in that. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. If we have a prayer team, we may need a few more than, than what was assigned. Anyone on the prayer ministry, um, if you see there's a need and you're in the prayer ministry, you guys, you can please come up. I really ask, um, I really ask that we, we maintain the altar for those who've been assigned to pray. I love when we all can pray for one another, and that's a part of it. But if, if you haven't been assigned to pray, I just ask that you pray off the altar. Because when someone comes up here, they're trusting that, that we have signed off on who's praying. And there can be a lot of people that can walk in that I don't know who they are. And so it's, it's just a, a simple, practical thing for protection. If you've been assigned to pray, come on up here. If not, feel free to pray over people. But just make sure it's off and you ask them, do you mind if I pray for you? All right? Yeah, if Melanie, I don't know if Melanie, if you can come on up here. And, and Haroon, if you want to join her, feel free. And 
And then for anyone else, after we pray, if you go, we bless you and pray your heart would be filled with hope. So Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your word. And I thank you, God, that we know, we can know that you are working all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And I'm asking right now, Lord, as you have opened our eyes to this, I pray for this altar to be an ocean of grace. I pray that when people step onto that mat, God, that there would be an actual uh, difference in what they're stepping into. They're stepping into grace. It's an act of faith. They're stepping into grace. And I pray that as hands are laid on, I pray, God, that, that mindsets are broken off, God, that lies are broken off, that hopeless hearts, hope deferred makes the heart sick. I pray, God, that hope would be restored to hearts. I pray that for those that are in waiting, God, hope would hit their hearts. I pray there would be such a confidence, God, in your sovereignty and providence, in your nature that you're good. I pray against the lies that, that people are walking through things that you are not aware of, that, are, that is out of your control or out of your care. I pray that these lies are crushed at the altar. And I pray, God, that you would cause your people to dance. You would cause your people to rejoice, knowing, Lord, that there's not a single thing happening in their life, that you are not working behind the scenes. Lord, would you put in our spirit the same cry of Jesus? Father, we're not asking to just get through something, but we're asking for you to be glorified. Whatever that takes, whatever that looks like, we say be glorified, God. Lord, don't let a moment be wasted. We say let your full work of conforming us to the image of your son be done. For we want to look like him. So I thank you, God, that nothing is wasted. Not a single season, not a single day, not a single trial. Nothing is wasted with you, God. You redeem all things, Lord. So we say grace, grace to your house this morning. Grace, grace to your people this morning. Grace, grace to the heaviness that people are carrying right now. We say grace, grace. I see, I see like heaviness breaking off of shoulders now, breaking off of minds. You've been carrying things, wondering where is God in this? We say grace, grace. God is with you. God is good. We say grace, grace to those that have begun to doubt your nature, God. You are a good God. You are a good God. Well, give us eyes to see you again rightly this morning, Lord, that you are good. We declare in the midst of what we're walking through that you are good. We take back everything that the enemy is trying to steal by simply standing firm in the victory that you have given to us, Lord. We will not waver, O oh God. We will not doubt, O oh God, but we stand firm. We're going to watch, Lord, how you're redeeming everything right before our eyes. I thank you in advance right now, God, for all the things we will see on this side of eternity. I thank you for all the, the moments where the enemy is going to be shamed openly once again. I thank you now, God. As a body, we come along those sides that feel weak, that feel like they can't make it to that day, and we stand alongside them now, and we say, grace, grace to you. You will see that day. Grace, grace to you. Yeah. Yeah.